We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 9 this morning. You begin to make your way there. So we finished out chapter 2 last week. And so Paul really is, in this section, returning to some things he said in the first chapter, where we saw kind of the factionalism where they're breaking up. Man, I really like Apollos. I really like Peter. I really like Paul. And they're kind of breaking up on those, and Justin had led us through that. And so Paul's going to use that, but he's going to use that by way of example to highlight uh, their fleshliness, to highlight how they're kind of operating in the flesh, how they're operating uh, against how God has made them, how he has uh, or is sustaining them, how he's restored them and made them spiritual people. And so it'd be pretty interesting, but just know when we get to that, Paul has not forgotten that he made these comments. He has not forgotten that he had this lengthy section He's using it as an example of how they're not operating in the spirit, but how they're, in fact, operating in the flesh. You see, one of the things we find in Corinth is that they saw in themselves tremendous maturity. They saw in themselves as people that have arrived, people that knew all the right things, and they didn't need any simple teachings. They didn't need any kind of lesser doctrines as they saw it. They needed somebody to come in and, and share a new wisdom, to share a new idea with them. They thought that they had arrived. But one of the things you recognize that's both true in Corinth and that's true here is that maturity in Christ is measured by obedience to Christ. So maturity in Christ is measured by obedience to Christ. So it doesn't matter what I know. It doesn't matter if I, if I walk up and I just basically start reciting whole books of the Bible, or if you take your favorite systematic theologian, and I'm able to, to quote you page number and paragraph, and I just kind of wow you with all the various things I know about the doctrines of God and doctrines of the church and the end times and how all of these things come together, that when you see me in uh, other places, you see me leave this place, and you say, you know, his life does not accord it's not, I, like, I don't find the, the things he knows make any impact on the way that he lives, how he talks, how he represents himself at work, how he represents himself online. I, I mean, he's just kind of a jerk. He's kind of a blowhard. I just don't like to be around him. So maturity in Christ is not measured by what we know. It's measured by what we do. Maturity in Christ is measured by obedience to Christ. Look how Paul addresses them. He says, but brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And so he's talking about when he first came there. And so you can flip over to Acts 18 if you want to read about this later. When Paul first came to Corinth, he spent 18 months ministering with them. He's their church planner. He's their boots on the ground guy. He's the guy that if, if he wasn't there and hadn't done his work and hadn't labored amongst them, this church hadn't got, wouldn't have gotten started. So Paul's the guy. Paul's the guy that they know. And so he tells them, he said, look, when, when I was there, I couldn't address you as spiritual people. In essence, I mean, you just came to faith. And so if, if I just share the gospel with Dr. Sandin and he responds to Jesus and he gives his life to them, and I say, let me talk to you about the hypostatic union. Let me talk to you about, uh, about progressive dispensationalism. Let me talk to you about uh, this nuanced meaning of this word. In the very end of 2 Timothy, he's thinking, I don't know what any of those things are. I just know that Jesus loves me, that God sent him to die for me, and that the Holy Spirit is guiding my life. But these Corinthians, they want somebody to step in, and they want to step into full maturity and robust understanding. But Paul tells them, when I was there among you, you were still militating against the flesh. And so in essence, it's if somebody comes and they share the gospel with me, okay? 
And so I've got all this, this host of things that are kind of trailing behind me, the sin that I was living in. And so I was doing things and operating in the flesh, and so I was an alcoholic. I was doing things and operating in the flesh, and so I was a pornographer. I was doing things, and I was operating in the flesh, and I was a drug addict. I was doing things, and I was operating in the flesh, and I was compelled by goodness and goodness alone. And so then somebody comes in, and they interject Jesus into my life. I submit myself to him. Well, I've still got all these things pulling me back this direction. And so what Paul is telling them is, I could not give you maturity because you are still trying to come up out of your flesh. And that's understandable. That's understandable. Imagine if you have a child at home and and they begin to move from crawling to walking and then they stumble a little bit when they walk. And you say, what's wrong with you? You should be running marathons by now. That's, That's your stupidity, right? That makes no sense. But so too, it made no sense that these Corinthians, they wanted to run right out of the gate. So Paul reminds them, he says, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, people whose lives were solely dedicated to the cause of Christ and the cause of Christ alone, because you're people of the flesh, you're infants in Christ. Now, our boys at home, uh, Bryce, whenever Bryce refers to Graham as a baby, it is like, those are fighting words, Right? <laughs> You're acting like a baby, and man, it is just like rolling around on the floor. He called me a baby! I mean, melting down. And so in some sense, the first time I read this, I was like, I can't believe he called them infants. But then I stepped out, and I thought, oh, look, he's not trying to insult them. He's saying, this is what you were when you came to faith. You were this person solely nurtured by the words you're receiving from myself, from Paul. You were infants in Christ. You were solely dependent upon him. And you knew not what it was to rest in your own uh, wisdom, to rest in your own know-how, because your former manner of existence, your former way in the flesh, it found no parity, no commonality in Christ. So when you came to Christ, you're a new person. The old is gone, the new has come. And so there's nothing about the way that you were in the world that prepares you for the way that you are now in Christ. You're infants in Christ. Look at the intimacy of this metaphor here that Paul uses. He says, and I fed you with milk, not with solid food. I fed you with milk, not with solid food. Imagine if you were to have a child at Hunt Regional, and instead of La Leche coming around and showing you all the various ways that you have to nurse until they're 37, that that instead uh, a local cattle uh, rancher comes by and he says, look, I had some, some cows out there going to head to the sale, but I cut them up and brought you a T-bone. Here you go, feed them. And you're like, I can't, like, no teeth. Like, no teeth and, and, look, no appreciation for a nice T-bone. And that's really the biggest problem. And so you're not going to try and administer, you're not going to try and give a T-bone steak to a newborn baby, right? Right? You might measure a T-bone beside a newborn, but you're not going to try and get them to eat it. And that's the point Paul's making there. I fed you with milk. I fed you with the basic necessities of the gospel, and this is what you needed, and this is good. Paul's administering to them, teaching them this really kind of charismatic, basic, beginning, crystallized understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God created all things. That humanity rebelled against God. And that God has rescued us by virtue of sending his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live a perfectly sinless life. That God in flesh, that God took on flesh and he died for you. Did you know that God was going to punish you for your sins, for your transgressions against him? But God poured out his wrath. He poured out the penalty of sin on the son, 
Jesus Christ. And then he calls you to believe in him. He calls you to respond to him. And then he calls you to live for him. So Paul's teaching them this over and over and over again. And for most of us sitting in this room, we hear the basic truths of the gospel. And we don't, it doesn't redound in us for more excitement and more joy. We check out and we think, I already know this. This is simple. This is like beginning stuff. I want some meat. I don't want milk. But the, Paul point, the, the point Paul is making here is that we never outgrow the need for the simplicity and the basic building blocks of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, because it's this basic building blocks of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to transform our lives, to call us from death into life, and to daily transform us into people who are growing in maturity in Christ as we respond to being obedient to Christ. So he says, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for it. The sad truth is today, many of us in this room are still not ready for it. You came to faith a decade ago, five years ago, and you were overjoyed. You were blown away at how good the gospel was and how amazing that you heard it and how uh, just fantastic it is that you can respond to it and receive it. And, th- and then it just stopped for you. You had like five days of a high and a highlight, and everybody you met thought you were hawking Amway because you just wouldn't shut up about how great it was. And you sold a little soap on the side. But some of us, man, we've never progressed beyond that because we've seen primarily our relationship with Jesus about life saving. So it changing where I'm going to spend eternity, but not about life transformation in the here and now. But the amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is it doesn't just transform your eternity, but it transforms your right now. So we are a Jesus people. We are a people compelled to be obedient to Jesus, and we're a people compelled to be obedient to him today, not just in eternity. So he comes to them, he says, you weren't ready for the solid food, and I got bad news for you. You're not even ready for it now. You're still in the flesh. Now let me let this sink in for you. Paul goes and he spends 18 months with them. So imagine 18 months of just incredibly intense discipleship. Paul is in their lives. He is is sweating alongside them. He is being persecuted alongside them. He is teaching them. He is in their homes. They're traveling with him. They hear him speak. They're able to just ask him any question and every question. What in the world did you mean by this? Could you explain this? Like, I didn't get this. 18 months of that. And so now he writes to them four, four and a half, five years later, and they haven't progressed. They think they're mature in Christ because they've grown in knowledge, but by evidence of their disobedience, they are no more mature than they were day one. They've lost their zeal. They've lost their appreciation of the gospel. And they have no sight for what it means to be obedient to the gospel. Let me give you four principles. Four principles of growth in the gospel. And you're going to find these in the text. I was just thinking about this and thought, man, what are some ways that like, we can put flesh on this? What are some ways that we can look at it and say, this is something that I need to focus on in this text as I seek to be more than just knowledgeable about my faith, but as I seek to be obedient to Jesus? Four things I think that are helpful. Number one, we need to be a remembering and a forgetting people. We need to be a remembering 
and a forgetting people. We need to be always changed and transformed by a remembrance and a knowledge of this. You are loved by God. Malachi 1-2, it's this amazing word. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. So we, we take that just on its own, the fact that God loves us. I mean, if you read the rest of Malachi, you notice his word of love and his profession of emotion and feeling and disposition towards this people, they weren't a lovable, obedient, kind, and God-centered hearted people. They're incredibly disobedient. They're profoundly lackadaisical in their approach to God. But his interceding word to them is, I have loved you. He loves you in the Son. He loves you in your disobedience. And he is wooing you back to himself. Remember this always. God loves you. His delight is in you. And he delights for you to find yourself in him through his son, sustained by his spirit. We need to be a remembering people. We need to be a forgetting people. Paul writes in Philippians 3.13. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, listen to this, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. We want to forget the bad things in life. And we should. If you're constantly dragging around your failures and reminding yourself of what a hapless nitwit and idiot you were two weeks ago when you made this mistake or when you committed that sin, then you're not walking and relishing in the forgiveness afforded to you by the blood of Jesus. But the same thing happens if you're constantly walking around and remembering and relishing in past success. Past success is not a great indicator of current fidelity to God. We need to be a remembering and forgetting people. We need to have steady obedience. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, <clears throat> he says, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul uses over and again this idea, this concept of what it is to walk, of what it is to kind of have a manner of life, a manner worthy to that which you were called. Steady obedience. We tend to be a sprinting culture, a people who just kind of throw ourselves full into something and we, we cut everything else out in our lives and we focus just on this one thing. But then what happens when we begin to sprint? We grow weary. We grow tired. We get distracted, and then we just fall off and we kick it to the curb. What Paul calls us to, and with a repeated testimony of Scripture, is that what we have to do in order to pursue maturity is to have steady obedience. Steady obedience and quick confession. One of the things that, that messes us up so often in desires to be obedient and desires to walk well is we don't adequately deal with sin. Some small sin creeps into my life. And the older I get and the closer I grow to, grow to Jesus, the smaller the sin, this, even these small sins become incredibly acute to me, pronounced to me, because they represent a fracture in my bond and relationship to Jesus. 
Look what John says in 1 John. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. In essence, if you say, look, there's nothing going on in my life, everything is fine, and I am totally sold out to Jesus, there is some shade of that that you're absolutely lying and deceiving yourself with. There is sin crouching at your door, seeking to lord itself over your life and seeking to ruin you upon the shoals of self-confidence. If you say you have no sin, you lie to yourself. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's this amazing thing that we're able to go before the creator of the universe and I'm able to say, God, I have failed. I have failed in these ways. He's not caught off guard. He doesn't look at that and say, Matt, I had no idea you were such an idiot. Like he's watching me do these things. He sees me headed down this path. He's able to forgive us our sins. And look what he goes on to say and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The amazing thing about our God is he doesn't just forgive us our sins, but he's also moving in and he's cleansing the stain of unrighteousness from our hearts. We need to be a a people of community. We need to be a people of community. And within that community, we need to be transparent and forgiving. Within the book of Philippians, Paul writes in Philippians 1.27, It's the same idea of our manner of life, the way we walk. Look what he says. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. Look what he says. You are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. We need community. We don't just need community because we're lonely on our own, but we need community because that's where our strength lies. The strength of a Christian doesn't lie in just a husband and a wife unit, but it it lies in them being surrounded by older couples and younger couples so they can look at the younger couples and say, see, look, we were stupid, but we made it. So they can look at the older couples and say, look, they made it. And so the older couples can look at both of them and say, see how God has redeemed the mistakes of my past and brought me safely through. Let me help you avoid the pitfalls of my past. We need community. You need community. If you don't have it, it's just a matter of time before you slip and fall on your own. You're going to fall into the pit of despair. You're going to fall into despondency. You need community, not friends. You need people who would look at you, who you could be open and transparent and honest with, and they would look at you and know the things you're struggling with and ask you hard questions so that you would give honest answers, so that you might turn around to do the same things to them. We need community. Sin thrives in a vacuum, but it dies in community. Lastly, we need consistency. Galatians 6, 9, we need consistency. Paul writes, he says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. It's easy to be diligent and to work hard for a season. If I walk outside and, and I say to our boys, eight and five, y'all, clean the garage, clean this mess up. I want it to shine when I come back out here. I don't know why I want a garage to shine, but perhaps I do. They look at it and their eyes get real big and they're just overwhelmed at the immensity of the task ahead of them. And what are they gonna do? 
that are going to make a lot of noise, they're going to make it a lot dirtier. Just kind of practical experience. This is what's going to happen. They're not going to move any closer to having it accomplished. And many of us, that's what we do in life. You have some sin in your life right now. You have some habit, some hang-up in your life right now, and it is owning you. It's destroying you from the inside out. It's destroying everybody around you. It is a cancer eating away at your soul. And you seek to best it and, 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 and wrangle it and keep it confined to just yourself, and you cannot win this way. And this has been the course and manner of your life for five years, for five months, for a decade, as long as you can remember. Listen to what he calls you to here. Do not grow weary. He loves you. You have people around that show the love of God to you, that want to walk with you, that want to support you, to remind you of God's goodness, to remind you of his forgiveness. Do not grow weary. This is all of us together. We're in this for the long haul, for his glory. Amen? So he comes to them. He says, look, four and a half, five years later, you guys are still not ready. You're still of the flesh. So you can imagine the stinging word of that, just thinking, how are we still in the flesh? Look at all the stuff we know. Look at our record of church attendance. Okay, don't look at our record of church attendance. Okay, look at our contributions. Okay, don't look at our... Why are you so picky, Paul? We're still here, aren't we? As Paul writes in the second half of verse three, he says, for while there is still jealousy and strife among you, you are not, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? Paul looks at their community and he sees two things primarily that, that show up. Jealousy and strife. They're squabbling and bickering over basic tenets of the faith, and they're jealous. They see Jordan, and he's just, just handsome as all get out and eloquent and amazing, and all these things are going right for him, and they want that to be for them. They see Dale, and they say, man, he is loved and adored by everybody in the community. I want what he has. They see Larry, and they say, I want what he has. They see Leanne, they say, I want what she has. They're comparing themselves to those around them instead of comparing themselves to Jesus. They want to be seen and recognized as being better than they are, and they can't celebrate with those around them when they win successes in life. They're jealous of one another. There's strife. There's, there's anguish. In essence, you could say, look, if these things show up, and they do in every church, in this church, in any church you would ever attend, kind of the old uh, saying, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you're going to ruin things. None of us are sinless. None of us are perfect. And we all have some issue we're working out. But what we need to be in community is a community who recognizes when sin rears its head and begins to act in a negative way, working to the detriment of a local fellowship. And this is what he sees in them. In fact, he sees something really particular in them. He sees that what they've done is that they've latched onto who their favorite teacher is who their favorite pastor is, who the favorite luminary within their church. And so it says in verse four, when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? Imagine then if, if the five of our elders lined up, and so you've got me, you've got D. Hilton, you've got Justin, you've got Ken Money, and you've got Philip, and, and we're lined up across the front. And you look at us and you say, oh, he, he, he's real good with numbers. 
Or, man, he just has, I don't know why. Okay, I'm sorry. Anyway, so you say he's really good with numbers. I mean, everything he does is great. He's just so ordered and so uh, generous and so kind. And, oh, man, this guy over here, his pastor's heart is just amazing. I just love the way that he ministers to my family. And this guy over here, he is so incredibly discerning. He's the most discerning person I've ever met. And, and, and Justin has the biggest beard of anybody I've ever seen. And, and he has some great stuff hidden underneath that beard. And, and I just really appreciate just, <laughs> I really appreciate his sense of humor. And I just love it when he preaches and Matt shuts up and he's sick or maybe he's on vacation or whatever. You know, if he's sick, that's fine too. And I just, I just, I just man, he's my guy. Or you look at me and you say, oh, he, he's my favorite because he gets the microphone the most. And he's never said anything just incredibly offensive to me. You haven't been here very long. <laughs> and so we're going to kind of break out. And, and, and man, this is going to happen. Like we are people, you're going to find one of the elders at Ridgecrest that you identify more with. They speak your language. They're closer to your generation. You just, you resonate more with them than you do with one of the others of us. And that's great. But the issue there in Corinth is they looked at them and in essence, they made the argument that this should be the only guy we follow, that all the other ones are idiots. And so they begin to break up over that issue. They begin to have strife over that issue. But do you not see how that same thing can happen with our elders or with your Sunday school teacher or with your internet pastor or some pastor in the past that you would look at them and say, this is my guy. And everything in life is measured against who that person was. You have your favorite pastor, you have your favorite teacher, so that anything else you ever hear is always compared and contrasted beside this person. You say, well, my pastor would never say something like that. So we put them on this pedestal, and they're the ones we get to follow. And let me tell you something. We tend to follow people that have no insight and no vision into our lives because it's easy to disagree with them. You see what I'm saying? We want to follow at a distance. We want to praise and idolize people that are out there that can't look in here because it's easy to disagree with them. It should not be this way. It should not be this way. Paul makes the point that when we do these things, we're not acting in submission to the Spirit. We're acting in accordance with the flesh. So he goes on, he says, look, you have to understand how ridiculous this is. So he says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul in essence? Like, what is there to these guys that you would want to follow them? You need to understand, he says, that they are servants through whom you believed. Paul chooses this word there uh, particularly because what he does is he takes a word from their vernacular, from their common usage of this guy or this person who would be out kind of serving tables. You don't see them. They are invisible. They walk up, and it's kind of like when we first moved back to the U.S., uh, we went out to eat at a restaurant, and overseas, there's no such thing as free refills, but within the U.S., you just drink until you just wet yourself there at the table. And so <laughs> I just kept looking over, and my Dr. Pepper was constantly full. And I was obsessed with drinking it back down again. So they'd fill it up and I'd drink it back down again. Like a dozen Dr. Peppers into this meal. I just said, enough. I never saw them come and go. This is what a servant does. We don't see them come and go, but we see evidence that they were there. Paul says, Apollos is nothing. I am nothing. They are servants. They're these invisible people that were conduits for your faith. They were faithful to dispense the gospel 
but you responded because the Lord assigned to each. These men were faithful. Paul goes on in verse six. He says, look, I planted. I was the first one there, so I went out and I cast the seeds of the gospel. But then I left you after 18 months, and Apollos came along, and he watered. He's tending you, and he's making sure you get enough sunlight. He's making sure the word is rightly applied to your heart. I planted in Apollos' water, but then he comes back, and he says, but God gave growth. If God didn't show up and Paul planted, nothing happens. If God didn't show up and Apollos watered, nothing happens today here at Ridgecrest and every church across our community in the world, if God doesn't show up, we're all doomed. Now listen, listen. On my way home today, if I die in a fiery crash, nothing should change here. Nothing should change here. If God moves in the next six months or year or two years and he calls my family and I to move to Africa or to move to Houston, God forbid, or to move anywhere else, oh Lord, please no. Anywhere but there. Okay, not anywhere, but, but nothing should change. Why? Planted, somebody else watered, but God is giving growth. This is the strength and security of the plural elder model, that our church is constantly being led by more than one person, that if something happens to one of us, that someone else steps in and fills this role. Nothing should change. And our attendance at any church should not be primarily centered upon who the guy is that gets to talk the most. We're servants. We're servants. So he goes into verse 7 and he says, Look, he who plants and he who waters aren't anything, but only God who gives growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Do you know that over the course of someone coming to faith that you are playing a role that you may never see come to fruition? That whether it takes somebody hearing the gospel seven times or 70 times, you don't know going into this conversation, but God is calling you to be faithful. Each of us plays an indispensable role in being conduits of faith for everyone we come into contact with, but we are fully dependent upon and resting in God to bring growth. Amen? Amen. So this is why he says, he who plants and he who waters are one. We are all on the same team, moving and operating in the same direction. And, and, and honestly, this is why I like For the City so much. It's because it puts all of our churches on the same team. There is this, this, this understanding that, well, Highland Terrace is doing this thing over here, and, and Wesley is doing this thing over here, and Cross Point is doing this thing over here, and, and this church over here is, is doing their stuff, and we can't remember their name, but we're fairly certain that's just where, the, where, the, where it's located, and we, we think they may have a pastor or somebody who gets up and says something. But we kind of break up into our own camps. We kind of break up into our own distinctions. We kind of break up into our own deal and say that we are the best and we're the only ones who are getting this right. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. We have various churches across this city, across this community, who are serving an indispensable role. But at the same time, it's an interchangeable role. If God doesn't show up, all the churches in this area, we're just spinning our wheels and, and, and doing a great job as nonprofits. But if we could work alongside one another and leverage our finances and leverage our, our people to get us to move beyond factionalism, beyond denominationalism, and to say, it's okay that you do that over there. I, I don't have to come to church with you. 
And it's, it's okay that you choose to be wrong in this particular way. <laughs> and they would look at us and say, it's, oh, it's okay that you choose to be wrong in your particular way. And we just kind of laughed because I'm sure it's an inside joke. <laughs> but man, we have this tremendous opportunity to work together with one another. And why the heck not? We have a lost world that's, that's diametrically opposed to what we're doing with the gospel. Our other brothers and sisters in Christ across this community and other places, we are on the same team. They plant, we water, God gives growth. We plant, they water, God gives growth. What's the one thing that has to happen? God has to give growth. We are interchangeable, each and every one of us. Let's endeavor to be indispensable. Let's endeavor to work for him. Remembering this, that our maturity in Christ is measured by our obedience to Christ. And he calls us to be obedient to him here in our lives now. We get to the end of this and we find out that at the end of our lives that we're going to have a reward from God. Do you know what the reward is for the Christian? I just dispelled you of the notion that you're going to get a mansion a couple of weeks ago, but it's not a bigger crown. It's not a corner lot. It's resting and trusting in God's joy over your life well lived. That God would look at you and say at the end of your life, well done, my good and faithful servant. The privilege we receive, the wage we receive, the reward we receive is the pleasure of our God and Father. That's what we're working for. That God would look at us and be well pleased. And then he has this terrific reminder here at the end. He says, for we are fellow workers and you are God's building, you are God's field. What's the one consistent thing across all three of those descriptors? All three of them belong to God. Whether you're working or being worked on, God is the one who owns you. He is the one who makes it effective and he's the one that brings it to an end. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we have men and women in this room who have been in church many years. They responded to the gospel decades ago, but they have never advanced. What they know is never transformed in obedience. And so, God, we pray that you would help them today to be obedient to your gospel, that their lives would be transformed, that they would submit themselves to you daily. God, we have people in this room who have never responded to the gospel initially. They have lived in goodness, disbelief, or rebellion. And so God, today I pray that you would call them, that they would surrender to you, and that they would confess their sins and respond in faith in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.